Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kate Galuzzi. I am professor and chairperson of the Department of Geriatric and Palliative Medicine at the Philadelphia College for Osteopathic Medicine. And I'm also the director for comprehensive care here at PCOM. It's my pleasure this afternoon to field some questions that are frequently asked when we present a program entitled REMS, Risk Evaluation Mitigation Strategies for Safe Opioid Prescribing. And as you can imagine, this is a very fraught area with a number of questions that are always asked. We do try to get to the questions, but we can't get to all of them. So I'm going to go ahead and dive into some of our FAQs right now. The first one is, what are some best practices for tapering opioids? And before I even start, I have to share a little funny anecdote. I have a very dear friend who is a colleague, a palliative medicine physician. She's an internist in Michigan. She was on vacation uh, several years ago, and she got a call from the emergency department that her father was there in full-blown withdrawal. What happened was he had been well-maintained on opioids while he was getting prehab, if you will, working, working out, getting ready to have his hip replacement, went, had the hip replacement, went without a hitch, uh, went to rehab, did very well, was discharged to home from rehab, got home, realized that he was doing so well, he wasn't in pain, he was ambulating, he decided to stop his opioids. Now, my friend, of course, was mortified. As a PalCare doc, she couldn't believe that she hadn't told her dad, but neither had anyone else, that he needed to wean the opioids, that he couldn't just stop them. So, you know, while the literature is rather sparse on exactly how to taper, uh, CDC has made some recommendations, and they acknowledge that safe tapering can be completed over a period of months to years, depending on how high a dose the patient is on. And each patient should do this in an individual fashion. But the recommendation is to start with a decrease of about 10% of the original dose per week until you get to 30% of the original dose. And then thereafter, follow that with a weekly decrease of about 10% of that 30% that you had reached of the remaining dose. While we're doing this, we have to, you know, address behavioral issues. If people are having some unpleasant side effects, uh, we can add uh, an alpha agonist. We usually use something like clonidine or lofexidine. Clonidine does help to ablate some of the unpleasant withdrawal symptoms that people may be experiencing. And so when the patient, assuming the patient was on an extended release long-acting opioid, when you get to the point that you can convert them back to an immediate release dose, then you can continue to reduce that immediate release dose by 10% um, until the patient feels like they're able uh, to stop it. And the way they do that is if they're able to tolerate, you know, once a day dosing, then clearly it might be time to go ahead and stop. 
The caution has to be with women who are pregnant uh, because as we know, uh, rapid decrease or withdrawal of opioids can result in spontaneous abortion or premature labor. So I hope that's helpful with respect to how we can taper opioids in our patients. And then here's related questions. What is a good indication of tolerance versus dependence versus addiction and how are they assessed? So, you know, the, the key point that you have to remember is that tolerance and physical dependence are physiologic manifestations. And it's the body's response to the, the use of a medication over a period of time. And in particular, opioids are associated with tolerance to their analgesic effect and there can be tolerance to some of the other side effects of opioids, like itching or nausea, vomiting. Uh, a big exception, of course, being constipation. No one ever develops tolerance to constipation, which is why we always co-prescribe stimulant laxatives. But what is tolerance? Well, you know, if, if you jumped into a cold pool or a, a, a swimming pool, it's the end of September, the water's going to feel really cold. But after you know a few minutes, especially if you're swimming around, it's going to feel refreshing. Same thing with a hot shower where you end up turning up the heat five minutes in. That doesn't mean you're a hot water addict. It means that your body has developed tolerance. How do we assess that? We assess that by talking to our patients and letting our patients know that this can happen. But the big thing is going to be that the patient is going to report that they're not getting as much pain relief as they used to from the medication. And we can recognize that what they're experiencing is tolerance. Physical dependence is the, is the physiologic manifestation that will lead to withdrawal if they stop the medication. So, you know, physical dependence, um, you might look at an individual and say, well, her function is so much improved now that she's able to walk the dog around the block. Well, she is. She's dependent on that uh, medication for the analgesic effect that's allowing her to have that level of function and quality of life. Again, if she stops the medication, um, you know, what we say, cold turkey, you know, just abruptly stops the medication, she will experience withdrawal. And that is why we do need the tapering guidelines that we're talking about. Now, the question asked, how do we assess that versus addiction? I want to remind our audience that, you know, addiction is a bit of an outmoded term. We now use the term substance use disorder, or in the case of opioids, we say opioid use disorder. So for our patients who are manifesting opioid use disorder, what I think we have to remember is this is not a physiologic manifestation of the use of the opioid. This is a behavioral maladaptation. And uh, opioid use disorder is, has now been recognized as a chronic disease. And it presents with what we like to think of as the, the C's, a loss of control, the compulsive need to use, and continued use despite harm. The harm can be uh, to the person's um, relationships, their employment, 
or even their physical health, but they continue to use the medication. And then, of course, the craving that they feel uh, with the tremendous need to have that medication. So, you know, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about aberrant behaviors. These are behaviors that we recognize, for example, like misuse or abuse as risky behaviors and behaviors that may be indicating the development of opioid use disorder. And it really is their pattern and severity that we have to be thinking about. Again, addiction is behavioral and, uh, you know, physical dependence and tolerance are physiologic adaptations. In terms of how we can assess this, well, you know, there's the COM, the C-O-M-M, that's a, a screening tool that we can use for individuals who are on long-term opioid therapy. But DSM-5 has also given us guidance, um, and they, they describe opioid use disorder criteria very similarly to those Cs that I gave you. So it's use in larger amounts or longer duration than was intended, a persistent desire to cut down but the inability to do so, giving up interests, um, and hobbies to use opioids, time spent obtaining, thinking about using or recovering from opioids, craving or strong desire to use, recurrent use resulting in failure to fulfill role obligations, recurrent use in hazardous situations, clearly that's an aberrant behavior. Um, and continued use, again, as I mentioned, despite social, interpersonal, employment, or other problems. And then finally, continued use despite it causing physical or psychological harm. Now, you know, that is, any one of those can be rated. And if you're using the DSM-5 OUD uh, criteria, somebody who has two or three of these manifestations would be considered to have mild opioid use disorder. Someone with four to five of them would have moderate, and then severe would be greater than six. So people who have six of these or more, we would definitely characterize as having opioid use disorder, and it would be time for us to have a sit-down with them and their caregivers and get them into recovery. Numbers 10 and 11 on the uh, DSM-5 OUD criteria are tolerance and withdrawal. So tolerance and withdrawal, because they are considered to be, you know, physiologic, are not scored if the patient is using the medication that you prescribed as directed. So what we're saying is we anticipate that someone is going to have tolerance, and if they are physically dependent on the medication, they will manifest withdrawal. So these are things that we might kind of, uh, you know, assess and um, be aware of. So what are some counseling strategies that you use for patients with pain? Well, this is personal, of course. You know, um, CDC has recommendations. FDA has recommendations. I personally, because I am an osteopathic physician, um, believe in assessing the patient for, uh, you know, osteopathic lesions, myofascial problems, and I really think it's important when you're counseling a patient with pain to let them know that you believe them, to listen to them, to hear them, and then to try to characterize what type of pain they have. 
Do they have nociceptive pain? In other words, can we point to a tissue injury? Have they had maybe a mastectomy or a thoracotomy or a fracture? You know, these are things or, or some, you know, illness in, in, a, in an organ system that you can point to as causing the pain. Certainly inflammatory pain we can point to and say, yes, this is no susceptive pain. And that can be distinguished against neuropathic pain. So the nociceptive pain is pain in which there's tissue injury. Neuropathic pain is actually a type of pain that occurs when there is uh, damage to the central nervous system. And as you know, you may not be able to see that. So an example of that would be postherpetic neuralgia. So uh, just because you can't see the pain doesn't mean that the pain isn't present. And the International Association for the Study of Pain has now recognized a third type of pain that they call nosoplastic pain. In the case of nociceptive pain, we can point to the tissue injury. In the case of neuroplastic pain, uh, you know, uh, we may be able to say, oh, the patient has diabetes, they have neuropathic pain because they've had destruction of nerve endings. With nociceptive pain, uh, we can say, all right, we know what happened. With nosoplastic pain, unlike these other two kinds, we may not be able to see what's going on. And these are patients who have abnormal central nervous system processing of pain, uh, and they, they are, these are disease states like fibromyalgia, um, you know, or uh, irritable bowel syndrome, and others. So how do we counsel patients? Well, number one, we try to educate them on what type of pain they have and what sorts of things are likely to be helpful for them. So it's a very broad question because you have to know what your patient is experiencing before you can even begin to counsel them appropriately. Um, I believe it was Dr. William Osler, Sir William Osler, who said it's more important for the physician to know what type of patient he has than to know what type of disease the patient has. So in other words, how is my patient going to manage? Does my patient have a history of comorbid conditions? Do they have a history of catastrophizing and uh, inability to cope? So it's kind of a, a, a different framework from saying, here's the pain, here's the pill, let's just move on moving toward trying to gauge an understanding of the type of pain that the patient is having, and then targeting your counseling to that type of pain. I said earlier I'm an osteopathic physician. I'm a, a big believer in motion is, lo is lotion. Motion is lotion. Uh, keep moving. No matter what type of pain it is, it's important that we are able to keep moving because we certainly want to avoid deep venous thrombosis, pulmonary emboli, and of course the deconditioning that goes along with lack of motion, lack of movement, that only leads to further pain and more debility. So when I counsel these patients after I've assessed what type of pain they have, and I've told them that I believe they have that pain, and tried to educate them as to what type of pain they have, I will try to counsel them to use mindfulness, self-management techniques, um, again, 
clinician-directed exercise. These are all very well received and they don't get strong recommendations from all of the expert panels, but many of the panels like the FDA and the CDC say that uh, there has been good efficacy for cognitive behavioral therapy and other forms of psychotherapy, especially for patients with chronic pain, and also for movement therapy. And the types of movement they're talking about are clinician-directed. Um, they, they specified uh, Tai Chi, which has very nice evidence for its efficacy, Pilates, and yoga. So I hope that's a little bit helpful in terms of counseling. The other thing that you should be aware of is that there are downloads available uh, for uh, patient provider agreements and counseling documents that you can print and use with your patients in discussion. And when you're counseling them, if you're considering um, using strong analgesics like opioids, that should only be con considered when other options have failed. But if you are, using a patient provider agreement is always a, a very, very um, good option for you and, in fact, should be part of your clinical practice. So uh, the next question is, what are the best non-pharmacologic treatment options? And again, the non-pharmacologic treatment options are going to depend upon the type of pain that the patient has. If the patient has myofascial pain, um, why not get them massage? Or if you have osteopathic manipulative uh, therapy available, I think that would be a wonderful idea. Certainly acupuncture can be helpful. If you don't have access to acupuncture or OMT, most of us have access to physical therapy. And physical therapists can be very, very helpful in uh, using modalities like ultrasound or other types of uh, aqua therapy or movement techniques to keep the patient uh, mobile and moving. And then we have non-interventional options like TENS units or electrical stimulation uh, that can be used before we have to go to pharmacologic or interventional procedures for these patients. So I hope that was helpful because um, you know, it is, it is very uh, time-consuming to have long conversations with patients about pain, but, but in the long run, having these kinds of conversations up front can actually save you and the patient some, some, you know, some trauma or some fallout. Um, I like to say that the reason that we have risk evaluation mitigation strategies for using opioid therapies is really tripartite. Number one, we want to protect ourselves. We want to protect our, our licensure. We certainly want to protect our patients. And the thing we really want to protect our patients from is an unintended overdose due to respiratory depression. And we certainly want to protect our patient from opioid use disorder. If we see that developing, we certainly want to intervene. And then the third part of this triad is protecting the public. And what that means is, in terms of counseling patients, 
if patients are using opioids or really any kind of analgesics, they should be stored appropriately so that they don't, you know, get used by people who should not be getting them. Unfortunately, there have been some very sad stories of, you know, children being harmed or even pets being harmed by getting hold of medications that they shouldn't. So somebody asked, what is the current recommendation to use acetaminophen together with a non-steroidal as an alternative to an opioid? Well, the, the uh, Veterans Administration and Department of uh, uh, Defense both say that, you know, acetaminophen could be used as first line for um, osteoarthritis pain. Um, and the American College of Rheumatology says that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications can be used as first line. Um, I don't know whether the questioner is uh, asking whether we should use them at the same time. I do know that some clinicians will counsel patients to, to alternate the Tylenol with the non-steroidal. Unfortunately, the evidence for uh, acetaminophen is not great. And um, what we know about the evidence for acetaminophen is actually is a prodrug, and it may, it may actually have effect as a uh, cannabinoid and act on the, CB, the CB2 receptors or the, C, yeah, the cannabinoid receptors in the body. So it has an interesting mechanism of action, and it's not without its own problems. It can, you know, obviously cause uh, liver injury. And we have to be cautious when we're using dosages. You know, of course, we were told four grams would be the ceiling dose. But in older adults uh, or people who have pre-existing liver disease, we have to be very cautious and probably keep it to about, uh, you know, two grams per day. And then alternating that with a non-steroidal, um, the problem, again, with uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, which, as we know, uh, work through COX inhibition, um, and they act on thromboxane and prostaglandins to uh, inhibit uh, pain. Um, the problem with non-steroidals is that the entire class has a black box warning for uh, cardiovascular risk, for thromboembolic phenomenon. So, you know, if the patient has a history of an MI, uh, certainly within the previous six months, uh, we would be very cautious with using non-steroidals. Um, but uh, the other problems with non-steroidals, they're, they're not perfect drugs either, obviously. They, we all know about the problem of gastric ulceration. And as a geriatrician, I'm always concerned about nephrotoxicity with non-steroidals. That said, if you have a patient who has no cardiovascular risk and their renal function is good and they haven't had a history of an ulcer, sure, use a, a, the lowest dose of the non-steroidal. And yes, you could alternate that with the acetaminophen and use that uh, to see how that works with pain. The one other thing I want to say about non-steroidals, because, because we do get this question a lot, um, what about patients who are using topical non-steroidals? We're really talking about diclofenac gel, uh, and there's also a diclofenac patch available. People ask, are those safe to be used in heart 
patients, in patients who have a history of heart disease? And the answer is that the absorption of a topical non-steroidal is far less. It's thought to be between 5 to 8% of the absorption that you would get from the non-steroidal if you took it orally. So yes, topical non-steroidals would potentially be an alternative to using, you know, systemically administered oral non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, and then, you know, the question is, which NSAID is the best choice? And uh, that's really an individual matter. Um, there are so many uh, available. Uh, but if possible, um, the one that we like to recommend, if, if you can get efficacy from it, is celecoxib, because it seems to have a little bit uh, better profile. But again, it's 200 milligrams once a day. So the question is, is that going to be sufficient for your patient? I think what you're hearing me say is medications are not the only option, uh, and we're talking this afternoon a lot about alternatives to opioids and multimodal therapy. So, uh, you know, these medications can be what we call adjunctive to whatever type of physical therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, or topical therapies that you're doing for your patient. Um, and when these all fail, then it's time to consider possibly having to use an opioid uh, analgesic. Um, so the, the final question I want to address today is, as patients become tolerant, what do you do when you approach the ceiling of safe dosing? So as a palliative medicine physician, we don't have a ceiling of safe dosing, um, simply because both the FDA blueprint and the CDC guideline acknowledge that the recommendations that they've made do not apply to patients who are facing the end of life, who have cancer pain, or multiple comorbid life-limiting illnesses receiving palliative care or hospice care, or patients with sickle cell disease. These patients will develop tolerance to the analgesic effect of the opioids, and we may need to escalate their doses beyond the 50 morphine milligram equivalent so-called ceiling that the CDC, not the ceiling, but the warning post where we have to reconsider the use of these meds, or sometimes even higher than the 90 morphine milligram equivalent dosing, which CDC does say that's pretty much of a ceiling. That said, though that is for patients who do not have life-limiting illnesses, sickle cell disease, or who are receiving hospice care. So how do I approach it? If, if a patient is approaching that 50 milligram morphine equivalent dosing, I need to have a discussion with them. And they need to understand the concomitant problems with long-term opioid treatment. Uh, namely, that we're going to have to continue to increase the dose. And that's when you really do need to consider alternatives. And some of those alternatives may involve interventional procedures. Um, it may be like my friend's uh, father, they may be recommended to go and get the hip replacement. 
and see if they can get analgesia and continue with good quality of life in that fashion. So I hope that has been helpful for you. I do want to conclude this afternoon by thanking you um, at, for everything that we do for our patients, that you do for your patients, and that we try to continue to do to keep our patients safe, to keep the community safe, and to give everyone the best quality of life possible. Thank you again.